Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I'm eating my supper, and I'm sitting in bed, and I'm looking at the TV, and the news comes over, Johnny Carson has died. And now, there's Larry King, and in the background, there's a screen in the background, and they are playing a compilation of Johnny Carson's, you know, 30 years of The Tonight Show. And they've got the one with the axe. And and there's Don Rickles jumping in the hot tub with Johnny, pulling him in. And I'm sitting in bed, and I'm eating, and I'm watching this, and I'm just sort of stunned at the news. And there on the screen, behind Larry King, is me and Johnny Carson with the sword doing that routine. And I just sort of stopped, and I just went numb. And I was just like, That was the most surreal moment in my entire life. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm here with the fabulously talented, legendary magician, Lance Burton, who's also a director, a filmmaker, a writer, an actor, And after I wake him up, after this introduction, we'll have a great podcast. I think I lulled him to sleep on the cold open. I actually dozed off for a few minutes myself, but I came back out of it, and I'm here for you. So let's go for this introduction. It's long. It's exciting. I've covered a lot of it, but who cares? We're going for it. I always like to give the introduction that goes the whole distance of time for somebody. Lance Burton is widely considered by his peers to be the greatest stage magician of the past century. As magic historian Mike Cavani has stated, take every magician in the world, line them up, and give them each 12 minutes. Lance wins. Born and raised aforementioned Louisville, Kentucky, Lance Burton burst onto the national stage on October 28, 1981, by making his first appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So impressed was Carson while watching the rehearsal that, as I said, he allowed him to do a 12-minute routine. Through the course of Burton's career, he was invited back for a total of 10 appearances while Johnny Carson was host and another 10 while Jay Leno had his tenure. 
Over the years, Lance Burton has performed on a wide range of TV shows, racking up appearances on Letterman, Leno, The View, Ferguson, The World's Greatest Magic, Hollywood Squares, and even acted in guest-starring roles in Knight Rider and Las Vegas. In 1996, Burton's first TV special, Lance Burton, Master Magician, The Legend Begins, and yes, it did. It aired on NBC. This was quickly followed by a series of annual TV specials, which included Lance Burton, Master Magician, The Encounter, Lance Burton, Master Magician, Top Secret, Lance Burton, Master Magician, On the Road, and Lance Burton, Master Magician, Young Magician Showcase, and he also hosted specials for the History Channel, including the one that I produced, Houdini Unlocking the Mystery. He's also hosted things for Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, The Family Channel, and many, many more. While successful on TV, Lance Burton's greatest accomplishments have been made in live performance. Working primarily in Las Vegas, he has performed an astounding 15,000 shows in his 30-year-plus career. His first job in Vegas was a feature act in the Follies Bergere at the Tropicana Hotel, a job he held for nine years. And in 1991, he opened his own show, Lance Burton, World Champion Magician, at the Hacienda Hotel, which ran for five years. But in 1996 was his crowning moment when the Monte Carlo Hotel gave him his own show, and he opened Lance Burton, Master Magician, at the brand-new Monte Carlo Hotel at the time in his own theater, the Lance Burton Theater. This was the first time any entertainer in the history of Las Vegas had a theater built and named for him. The contract at the Monte Carlo was for an unprecedented 13 years, the longest contract ever given to a live performer, ever. Lance stayed at the Monte Carlo for a total of 14 years, performing over 5,000 shows for over 5 million people grossing over $200 million. His last performance there was September 4th, 2010, a sad day for magic in Las Vegas. Throughout his career, Lance Burton has received numerous awards and accolades from his peers. In 1980, he was the first magician to be awarded the gold medal from the International Brotherhood of Magicians. In 1982, he was the first American and youngest magician to win the Grand Prix World Championship of Magic from the Federation Internationale Societies des Magiques. The Academy of Magical Arts, AMA, has honored Lance Burton with awards many times, including Best Stage Magician of the Year twice, the Master Fellowship in the Vegas Review Journal, Best of Las Vegas Reader's Poll, and Lance was voted Best Magician 12 years in a row a feat unequaled to this day, ever. Today, Lance Burton is happily retired and lives quietly in a fucking castle here <laughs> in Las Vegas. He spends his time supporting a number of charities, including Nevada SPCA, Heaven Can Wait Animal Society, Variety Children's Charity, and the Shriners Children's Hospital. He mentors young magicians. I know many of them who say he is the most unbelievably generous and wonderful person to them. And he has also taken up a hobby of filmmaking. He is currently working on a number of documentary and narrative film projects, including Billy Toppett, Master Magician, which will mark his debut as a film director, which premiered at one of the film festivals here in the country and won six different awards. It's unbelievable. 
He also worked on the film Oz the Great and Powerful as a magical advisor, and he taught magic to James Franco, who he now considers to be his number one student. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend and a legend, one of the most unbelievable magician and one of the most extraordinary men I know, Lance Burton. Wow, what an intro. And, and for those of you who, who aren't familiar with the terminology, when, when, when they say legend, that's code for old guy. Let me tell you something, okay? If I lived in this house <laughs> and I invited a girl over, if I couldn't get in the action, I might as well just hang up my junk and retire. It's all over for me. Well, this I built this house. I'll tell you the story behind this, behind this house. <clears throat> this land... Uh, was owned by a friend of mine. Well, first of all, as you said, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and and I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's farm when I was a kid. So I'm, at heart, I'm a country boy. So I like living out in the country, uh, in the r- rural section. So so where I was living in Las Vegas on the east side of town for many years, that was out in the sticks. There were people that had horses out there, and it was open desert. But as Las Vegas grew and grew and grew. The city sort of grew around me. Well, about about 2001, a friend of mine owned this land and, and, and it was way out in the, in the desert. And he said, hey, I want to sell this land. Why don't you take a look at it? And I came out here and it was 10 acres and it was like a little hill. And I, I was thinking, oh my God, this is the most beautiful site in Nevada because back behind me is all uh, uh, owned by the BLM, Bureau of Land Management. That's all government land back there. So it's like a wilderness area. And then on the other side, we can we can see downtown Las Vegas and the and the, uh, the north end of the Strip. And I just saw this this site, and I this is gorgeous. And and uh, it's 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 out away from the from the town. You know, I mean, it's out it's out. It, you know, I'm back out living in the country. So I. I bought the land from him and, and, and built this house. How long did it take you from cradle to grave, from your first meeting with an architect until you moved in? It was a, it was a long process. It was, it was like five or six years. Six years. Yeah, because uh, I think I'm, I've been in this house now 10 years, so it was like 2006, I think. How much time did the builders tell you it was going to take? Well, we didn't, we didn't really have an estimate, but you know, I didn't think it was going to take that long. But you know, for the longest time, there's nothing happening. It's just... They dig a hole, <laughs> and then you don't really see anything happening because they're bringing you know pipes and electrical things, up digging. It's a lot of digging the first the first couple of years. So, what's your favorite thing about the house ten years later, right now, that you love? And what's the thing that you walk around and you say, "What was I thinking?" I, I, I still I love the view, the mountains, especially in the winter when they're little get a little snow on the mountaintops. It's just gorgeous, and you can see the city, especially at night. You can see the lights of Las Vegas. Um, the one thing, though, the one thing though is is there is a lot of uh, electronic, you know, automatic. You can open the gates automatically, and, and the TVs and and everything. So, but if you ever if that goes down, then you're screwed. <laughs> you know, we had a uh, we had uh, <laughs> last week that the power went out. I guess in the whole neighborhood for a little while. <laughs> I couldn't do anything. You, know, you couldn't. You couldn't turn the TV. You couldn't leave. <laughs> that part's crazy. It's just so good to see you so happy and so fulfilled. I want to ask you something because I talked a lot about my cold open, how you get to the next level, and how things happen as an artist. 
And I'd actually like you to explain how it's possible that you go and you work so hard to get that first Tonight Show appearance where you're working on that 12 minutes forever. Oh, yeah. Just like a musical artist is working on the first album. But for you, you're just working on that first 12 minutes that just is going to kill. But you don't really have anything. Yeah, you have card tricks, but you don't want to roll out with card tricks because yeah. your peers will look at you like, okay, the guy did a $5 exactly. trick from a magic shop. Was there a strategic thing for you in going into the Follies Bergere? Yeah. As a guest set, I imagine for a shorter set on that to a long-term plan. Sure, yeah. When I when I first moved out west in '81 and did my first tonight show, uh, the act that I was doing—the birds, the cards, the candles, the floating ball—I mean, that was my act, and that's what I had spent my my youth, my 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 teenage years working on, and I did a lot of shows. Um, uh, my friend Matt King and I had a summer job uh, when I was uh, like a senior in high school or going to college. In Louisville. In, 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 in a little place about 100, 150 miles from Louisville and, uh, in, called Tombstone Junction. It was a little – that was the name of the park. It was a little theme park. It's one of these uh, uh, like western towns. They had, they had a sheriff and deputies, and they had bank robbers that would come in three times a day to rob the bank, and they would have a shootout. And they had an outdoor stage where they had country music, and it was down at Cumberland Falls, Kentucky, and in the middle of a national forest. And they had a little snack uh, place called the Red Garter Saloon, where you could get uh, hamburgers, fries, Coca-Cola, potato chips. People would come in there, and they'd get their lunch, and they'd sit down. And we would do a magic show. So we were doing three shows a day, seven days a week, all summer long. So that's 21 shows a week. So, you know, you go and you do all summer, you knock out 300 shows. And and we did, I did that three summers in a row. And so you're making an average of how much a show. I mean, we were paid, this was back in, in, in the early 80s. So I think... I'm trying to remember now. I think it was probably turned out to be maybe $20 a show. But you did 21 shows. Yeah, we did 21 shows a week. So you're making about 500 a week. Yeah, I think, no, I don't think we were making that much. I think we were making, I think we got 350 a week, the split between the two of us. Got it. And and they and they gave us a little uh, little house trailer to stay in. How far does one hundred and seventy five dollars a week get you in uh, Louisville, Kentucky? That was big money back then, you know. So you were living the dream. We, we we could have been out mowing lawns or delivering papers or. How did you afford the birds for your eggs? The birds. Oh, you know what we did though. Here's what we did. We 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 found a guy that would take our eight by ten photos and print them up on kind of cheap paper so we could get them for like two cents a piece. Then at the end of our show, we would come out on stage with a little briefcase with those photos and we would sell them to, to the people to get an autographed photo. No, people didn't know who we were, but they'd just seen our show. So the kids would all run up, you know, it was a dollar a piece. And so we would come out after every show and we would sell these eight by 10 photos and we would sign them to the, it was mainly, you know, that was our grocery money. Incredible. That was that was what we lived on, so we could save the rest of our money. Now we know what kind of act you did because you just explained it. What kind of act did Matt do? Matt King is is now is a headliner over at Harris Hotel here in Las Vegas. He does an afternoon show, and uh, he's one of the top magicians in the world. And and 
and uh, you know my favorite magician uh, working today. Uh, Mac uh, does comedy and magic, so it was a talk. So it was a it was a good show because we complemented each other. I was doing the the sort of classic magic manipulation with, without any talking, and Mac was the the guy that did the talking and the comedy. So did Mac ever roll out with a trick and you know like listen, pal? Um, that's a little similar to mine. No, we we actually we actually helped each other with our acts, um, you know, and 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 we'd do our three shows during the day, but we would always be tweaking, trying out new ideas. And I, if I had an idea for Mac, I would say, "Hey, try this next show," and vice versa. So it was really it was really a great learning environment because we were both there to work on our act. Were you doing the bird? And I say birds; they're not even birds that you do. They're like. I mean, they're like monstrous geese. Oh no, no, that was later. That came later. These were the dove, the doves. Doves. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so it's easy to afford doves. Sure. Yeah. Although we did have a we did have a duck one summer. Uh, that was the first time I ever worked with a duck. We decided for some reason we wanted to have a duck in the act, and we went out and bought baby ducks and raised them. And uh, people like ducks. They're just fun animals. Tell me, the first time. A bird died that you were taking care of. Oh, that's always sad when you lose an animal because you know you get they're not they're 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 they're, they're much much more than you know props. If you're using the animals in your act, they're they're your pets and they're your you know you work with them every day and 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 you're around them all the time. Um, uh, many many times, uh, I'd be sitting around at home and peep. I can't tell you i've lost count how many times will people say what's that noise and i'll go what what noise that noise i don't hear it's the birds cooing i don't hear them anymore because it's just i've lived with them since i was 14 years old so i've just kind of tuned them out but other people hear them but yeah uh in the wild uh, a dove will live uh, i think an average of maybe five to seven years um my birds are some of them now are you know going on 25 years old uh, between 25 and 30 years old uh, so they're all they're all they're all here at the house they're all retired too well the reason why they live is because they're living inside the mansion yeah, not out in the yeah. wild yeah but you know they but that was i was always i'm always been very very adamant about working with animals that you take care of them if you're using if you have a pet or you have a an animal in your act, that's your responsibility. You're responsible for making sure they have food and clean water and good living conditions and veterinarian care and, and that they're happy and healthy. Now imagine just there's all different kinds of magicians. There's all different kinds of people with all different kinds of character. So have you ever in your career seen a magician who treated his animals without respect and without care and how yeah, did you handle I, things yeah that that always yeah that always that makes me angry when i see that uh and you don't see it really very often i think the vast majority of magicians that work with animals are very very careful and very very loving and take care of their animals but if you do see it yeah that that makes me angry and i think i get that from my dad uh, my dad was a great guy and uh, very mellow, but there's only two things that would make him mad, and 
And if you got mad, watch out, because you didn't want to be on the receiving end. Uh, you didn't like seeing animals mistreated, and you didn't like seeing children mistreated. Those were the two things that would that would piss him off. And and I'm I'm exactly the same. So I want to just go back to this thing here. So you're working on this act. You got this 12-minute act. You're perfecting it. And so when you finally do The Tonight Show, right. you're ready. Yeah. And we all know what happened. It was amazing. But then you decide to go into the Follies Bergere. I'm sure that you were probably offered something bigger than that. No, the Follies was the perfect offer, and that's what I was waiting for. And I t- here's, here's what I'll tell you that I always tell young magicians, because they always want to come up and say, how do you, you know, get on TV? How do you get your own show? How do you do that? How do you do that? And I always say, okay, slow down. First of all, when I think back on my career, my life, when I walked out on stage uh, at the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson, and did my act on television for the first time, I had done that act 1,000 times in front of a live audience. I had done approximately 1,000 performances of that act in front of strangers. So when I walked out on The Tonight Show, the act was, was there. It was polished, and it was, it, was, you know, it, was a, it was a good, solid, you know, professional act. And this is what I tell the young magicians. I said, that's what your first goal is. Put your act together and make it, make it good, make it creative, put all work on it all the time and work on doing a thousand performances. You got to get that out of the way first. You got to get that under your belt. A thousand shows. That's your first goal. And that's, and that's, that's what I did. And then, and I continued to work, you know, and, and, but it was, it was being on the tonight show that got me my offer to come to Las Vegas to the Tropicana hotel in the Follies Brigier. Now that was the perfect job for me. Because that spot, that's what they wanted, 10, 12-minute act. And that's what I had. So I knew I could come to Vegas and I could and I could open my show. Now, once I got to Vegas, and it also gave me financial stability. I had a gig and, and I could pay my rent and I could now I could settle in. I could work on a big stage and I could work on other material. Because I looked up and down the strip, there was Siegfried and Roy. They had just opened their own show at the Frontier Hotel. And, and they had other headlining magicians that would come in to Las Vegas. Doug Henning was uh, at, the, at the, uh, the Hilton Hotel and at the Bally's Hotel uh, once or twice a year. So, so that was my next goal. I said, okay, I'm in Vegas and I've got a gig. That's great. Now... I want to make the jump from being a review show act to doing my own show because I had some things in my head that I felt I could could apply to that. How do you figure out how you're going to build the hour? What's the process for you to where you feel you're ready? One trick at a time, one one number at a time, one one joke at a time, one one magic trick at a time. So you'd have your 12-minute act, then you'd create a new piece. Let's right. say it's three minutes long. My next piece of material that I developed was the sword fight, which I used after that to close my, my show with for many, many, many years, all the rest of my career. And that was, a, that was a routine where I had a sword, and I would get a guy up from the audience and have him select a card, and I would stab throw the cards in the air and stab it. And that was his card. Then the evil sword fighting guy with the mask 
and he's right over there by the fireplace now. <laughs> the evil sword fighting guy would come out on stage, and we would have this whole duel, and uh, and 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 uh, it would look like he was got the best of me and killed me. But then I disappeared, and then the sword fighting guy spun around to look where I went, and then he would take off the mask, and it's me inside the sword fighting outfit. So it was a good, it was a good solid ending to the act. So that was the second the second routine that I put together while I was in Vegas. And that took two years. That took two, two or three years of really hard work to put that three and a half minutes together. Did you, obviously when you put together your first 12 minutes, you didn't have a consultant. Right. You didn't have anybody helping you. It was right. just you. You right. bounced things off of Mac King. Yeah. But you didn't have anybody. When you were out here, you made money. And the sword fighting routine, did you hire a consultant? I, well, I had other friends that helped, that gave me ideas and stuff. And, I, and yes, and I worked with my friend Johnny Thompson, the great Thompsoni, that we worked uh, together on the sword fight. Uh, and, and Johnny's older than me and has more experience and, and is, was very, very helpful and very instrumental. And Johnny and I had a, had a very long relationship uh, working on material. He helped me with a lot of the material in my show and in the TV specials. Um, and so yeah, that's, that's the other advantage is being out West, being able to have access to people like Johnny Thompson that are going to help you with your stuff. Explain to our audience how a magic consultant gets taken care of. In other words, if it's Elton John and Bernie Toppin, they write a song together oh, and sure. they share 50% of the royalties sure. of the publishing, not the actual singing, that's something different. But when a consultant <clears throat> does something, is it a situation where they make a flat fee and that's it and they're done or do they make something in perpetuity? Well, it's kind of, it, it can kind of be all, all of the above. For instance, Johnny Thompson Johnny is still. I just saw him. I just saw him the other day. Uh, is still uh, working. He's eighty-two years old. He doesn't perform anymore, but he consults. He works with Penn and Teller on an ongoing basis now. At least once a week, he he goes over and they have rehearsals and he helps them with their material. And, um, and for for many years, he was kind of my on-staff guy. So in other words, when you do a deal at a hotel, you build a budget in and there's a salary for the magic. Consultant. Right, right. So I paid him for many years. I paid him as my as my consultant and he would come in uh, once a week and watch the show and work with me on new new things. Um, and he he does he does that, as I say now, for Penn and Teller. But he also worked. He's worked in the past for Siegfried and Roy. He's worked for Chris Angel. He does kind of one-off things where guys are working on a, a trick or a show, and they'll bring him in for two or three weeks just to, 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 to work on a specific project. Now, you know how there's certain comedy writers, and they'll write an amazing joke for, let's say, Chris Rock is doing the Academy Awards. A writer oh, comes sure. in writes a joke and he'll be like, God, this is such a great joke, but it's not my tone. I can't use that one. And then that writer might work for another comedian and he presents that joke to them and they love it. Was there ever a situation where your magic consultant presented an idea for you that he thought would be great for you and you were like, you know, that's just really not my lane. 
and then he presented it to another magician and it became a huge part of their act. Uh, that, I, I, I suppose that's possible. I don't, I, nothing pops to the front of my mind uh, re- regarding that scenario. Um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes a magic consultant will, like you say, will come up with an idea. But, but generally what happens is uh, the artist will have an idea. He'll say, you know, I, I, I have this trick and I want to do this escape. Let's say it's an escape. I didn't do that many escapes in my career. Most I did some, but mostly on television. I saw one that you did on television where you were tied to a roller coaster okay. train track. Now, that's a good that's a good example because that was Johnny's idea. Johnny, uh, years ago, before before I opened at the Monte Carlo, I think, he was hired to be a, a magic consultant for a television special in Japan. They had a female escape artist who was from Las Vegas. They flew her to Japan, and they shot a whole a whole hour TV special of, of her doing escapes. And, and a lot of it was at this amusement park because they wanted to – that was one of their sponsors, I think, for the TV show. So they did a lot of location shooting in the amusement park. So, so Johnny came up with this thing where she was chained in front of a roller coaster tracks and had to escape before the coaster ran over. And Johnny came back and he, he had a videotape and he showed me the show. And I saw this roller coaster escape and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's crazy, Johnny. And then so then a few years later, I would, I would, when I started doing my TV specials, Johnny was working with me on the special. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And every year, Johnny would say, Lance, you know what you ought to do? You ought to do my roller coaster escape. <laughs> and I would say, no, I don't think so, John. But then after about three or four years, he talked me into it. So that was actually, that actually came from Johnny. One of the things I want to ask you, you mentioned you a thousand hours that you need to put in. And these days, recently, for instance, a magician that I know did the Ellen show. Yeah. And you'll see other magicians do other shows and you'll get the call as a magician from Fallon or from the Ellen show. And it's like, we want you to come on. And a lot of the magicians have done a lot of their best stuff. So then they kill themselves with a magic insult and they only have like a week to put something together. They try it out for their friends. They can't possibly do it a thousand times. Yeah, sure. And you'll see them in the dressing room and they'll be going over the trick over and over and over again. Sure. Whether it involves electronics or whatever it is. And sometimes I'm privy to those situations. And I think to myself, 
please stop trying that out. Please stop trying that out. Yeah, how many times can you flip a coin and it's going to go and say, feels like you keep doing it and it works and then you're going to get out there. It doesn't work. Yeah, I got to keep trying. I got to keep doing it. And I remember watching you on Chris Angel's first season and he was doing a routine where he was up on some kind of a crane in oh, some kind of a barrel. Yeah, the wine barrel escape. Yeah. The wine barrel escape. And the whole thing is it opens up, falls open, he drops about 15 feet. And I saw you on that show, and I called you up immediately. And I said, Lance, I'm going to say something to you that might come across the wrong way. I said, I know you're a great actor, but I saw fear in your face, and I know you weren't acting. No, no. Why would Chris Angel put fear in your face? <laughs> And your heart and your mind. And you said, Barry, because the show is low budget. He wants to do things that are different and extraordinary. He wants to take risks. He's probably practiced this only a few times. And I'm watching this and I know in my mind that he could die. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, he wasn't 15 feet off the ground. He was like 70 or 80 feet off the ground. He, he was higher than you want to fall. I mean, it would have been, if you fell from that height, it, you know, there's no question you would be, you would be dead. So, so the gag was, he was in, he's locked inside this wine barrel, and the, the barrel is lifted up in the air, and, and, and he, has, he reaches out through a hole in the barrel and unlocks the lock, and he gets out of the barrel, and then the barrel drops and smashes in the ground and so and so and then but what what we didn't know was chris once he got out of the barrel he had hooked on a little safety line onto his onto his belt and then he let go and now he falls he free falls 80 feet and and you don't see you can't see the wire until the last like fifteen feet when the when the wire slows him down and he lands. So so when he falls at first you're looking up going oh he's escaped and then you see him fall and you're going oh my god he's falling and you think oh I'm going to see I'm going to see a guy die right here in front of me but then at the last second you know he had the safety wire on him so that was all it was all very exciting uh, but the thing about it was there was no rehearsal. That was the rehearsal. They were on a very tight shooting schedule because they were shooting a whole season of Mind Freak, uh, and 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 they were just out shooting. There was no rehearsal. It was it was it was. He figured out a way to combine the elements of a magic show with the elements of a reality show. So you had all this behind the scenes stuff. So that was the drama. That was it was that that was the part of the reality show. You were seeing him do this for the first time. But you were scared. Yeah, I was scared. I was seeing him do it for the first time. It was it was very scary. I thought he was for a few seconds I thought, oh no, this is it, he's gonna die. Have you ever seen a magician or an escapologist die or permanently injured by a trick? No, I I no, not not live, but there's videos out there. There's a trick which I do not like. <laughs> and it's a very popular trick. I would never perform this trick. I don't like to see this trick because of the subject matter. And what it is, is you have a, a, a spike or a very large nail on a, 
on a little metal base so you can set it on the table. So this big, big giant nail is pointing straight up in the air. And then you take three paper bags and you take one of the bags and you cover the nail and the other two bags you set on either side. Then the magician turns his back and the spectator is allowed to mix the bags up. So then when the magician turns around, he doesn't know which, which bag the nail is under, but he takes his hand and he smashes the bag and crushes it up. And says, well, it wasn't under that one. And then he does it a second time and crushes that one up. It wasn't under that one. And then he lifts the third one up and there's, there's the spike under it sticking up. So you get the you get the it's a dangerous trick. So if you if you smash the wrong bag, that nail can go right through your hand. Well, that's exactly what's happened on more than once. There's there's videos out there on YouTube of these guys that that were doing this trick. This is why I don't like the trick. I just don't like the idea of the whole thing. Uh, I'm I'm a little squeamish when it comes to that kind of stuff. But there's videos out there of guys smashing their a spike through their hand. What's the most dangerous trick you've ever performed? Well, the the dangerous ones were uh, went for television shows. I did some escapes. I did the roller coaster escape, which you which you talked about earlier. Um, were you I scared did, when you were doing it? Yeah, I was scared on that one. I was scared on the buried alive. Now the buried alive, I've seen people almost die from that. Yeah, that was that's right. And and the buried alive, the trick was originally conceived by Harry Houdini as an escape back in the 1920s. There was a guy who was performing in the United States. He was from India. He was one of these what they call a fakir, one of these guys that sits in a lotus position and can you know control his heartbeat. Well, anyway. His his big act was he was he was put in a coffin and then they and then they would dump mounds of earth on top of him and he was buried alive and they left him there for you know forty five minutes and and the idea was there's only there's only two minutes of air in the coffin but because he he's able to meditate and control his heartbeat he's going to stay in there for half an hour or forty minutes. Well, Houdini saw this. And, and he thought, you know, this guy's not really meditating. He's just, you know, staying still and controlling his breathing. So Houdini just decided he was going to get in on this. And so he, he had a coffin, and, and they put it in a pool, swimming pool, underwater. And he stayed in for like an hour, hour and 15 minutes. So, so the next thing Houdini thinks, he gets a lot of publicity on this. So the next thing he thinks is, oh, this was a good idea. I'm going to do this as, a, as an escape. And, and he had a poster made of the escape. He was, he was going to use this in his 1927 uh, tour. And the idea was the coffin was going to be brought out on stage and was going to be put inside of a giant glass box and then tons of sand dump. And, 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 and now he's going to escape from the coffin and have to dig his way out live on stage. And he actually rehearsed the trick. And they actually found evidence that he actually performed it for a week. Because there was advertisements that they recently discovered. They just don't know what city it was in. But anyway, he died in 1926, so he never actually got to perform him. Uh, but, but since that time, there have been a number of magicians who've performed The Buried Alive. Uh, but I did it on television special back in the mid-90s. And we shot it out at the Valley of Fire, not far from Las Vegas, out in the desert. Um, but that was really 
uh, intense because there were very sharp rocks and earth. So anyway, I was I was in the coffin and it was I was in chains. It was buried, and then they there was a bulldozer that dumped earth and they filled it all in and and I had to dig up out of the out of the ground. So so I had cuts on my arm from all these sharp because you know that's again that's a trick that you don't want to rehearse if you want if you're going to do it you should just roll the cameras because you don't want to you don't want to have to rehearse it and then do it uh, but that was pretty intense uh, i did the upside down straight jacket escape uh, on a tv special and i did uh i was in a straight jacket in a tank of water and that was intense being underwater were you upside down? No, I was right side up, but it was a very small tank. It was very constricting, but just the whole idea of being underwater and having to hold your breath while an audience is watching you. It's, it's a very surreal feeling. Houdini, one of the taglines that people say, the historians, the way he drew audiences was they came to see him die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And back then there was no social media there was nothing. He would have to come to the town a week earlier, hang by the crane with a straight jacket or sure. a box going into the river. And that's how he would say, hey, I'm performing over there. He was at the box office. He was, he, was the, he was the Kardashians of his time. <laughs> he was the Donald Trump of his time. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was the P.T. Barnum before P.T. Barnum was around. Incredible. Let's go way, way back. Let's talk about where you were actually born, the kind of place you grew up in Kentucky, and what the socioeconomic dynamic was, and if you had other family members, if your parents were still together, and how you were raised, and then what was the first inspiration for you to want to be a magician? Uh, well, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. My parents, uh, Bill Burton and Hilma Burton, they were born there in Kentucky, and they grew up on the farm, you know, in the south central part of Kentucky, uh, out in the rural area. And they both literally grew up on farms where there were cows and cornfields. So you grew up on a farm? Well, I grew up mainly in Louisville in the suburbs, middle, middle class uh, neighborhood in the suburbs. But I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's farm on my dad's side and my grandmother's uh, farm on my, from my mom's side. Uh, we would go down to the farms on the weekends and I spent a lot of time in the summer down there and I had a lot of cousins. Um, so so I, I, I got to see what it was like working on the farm. I mean, it was a, and, and I still, uh, the farm is, is uh, now I, my sister and I own, own the farm, it was my grandfather's farm. And I have a house that I built there which I'm eventually moving back to. Um, and, and there's still cows there. When and, you say you're eventually moving back there, you're going to leave this palatial mansion. Yeah, moving, moving, back to the, moving back to the farm. Well, it's about 100 miles from Louisville. I mean, it's, it's way out in the... So you really are actually considering leaving this and going to... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm moving. When would you do that? Uh, sometime in the next couple of years. And what would you do with this place? Well, it's maybe available by then. Maybe you're, 
Maybe you'll move to Vegas. I don't know if I can afford this yeah, place. Yeah, well, I, I don't know even think got, I can afford this room. I know you got that last comic standing money. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so you're growing up there, so you're kind of poor growing up. Well, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say poor. I mean, I think we always had something to eat, and uh, we always had, you know, fresh, f fresh food from the farm, uh, if nothing else, but. Uh, my mom and dad both worked blue-collar jobs. My dad worked at a building supply company, and my mom worked at the Frito-Lay plant making potato chips. Um, so we, like I say, we grew up, I grew up in Louisville in the suburbs, and um, my first, the first time I ever saw a magic show was, uh, I was five years old, and it was the employee's Christmas party for the Frito-Lay plant. So my mom worked at the plant making potato chips and they had a Christmas party for all the employees and they had a they had a man that worked there who was at that time was the sales manager and his name was Harry Collins and Harry was from Glasgow, Kentucky and he was a terrific magician, uh, exceptional magician. And he was doing a magic show for the Christmas party for all the employees. And um he asked for a volunteer from the audience. And of course, all of the kids raised their hand. Every kid wanted to go up on stage to help with the magic show. And, but I was the kid he pointed to. And I went up on stage and he started doing this trick where he pulled silver dollars out from behind my ear. And I was totally uh, amazed and awestruck. And, uh, and, but I have, to, I have to explain, I didn't understand what I was seeing. I thought that it was real. I didn't understand it was a trick. I thought that somehow there was money behind my ears and I just hadn't noticed it. And for the next week, every day I would get up and I would look in the mirror and I would, <laughs> I would check my ears and I would, I would check my hair and I, I just couldn't understand it. And then finally somebody must have explained to me that you know, the man doesn't really have magic powers. It was a skill, and so that was my that was my introduction to magic, and it made a it made a big big impact on me, and uh, and I was interested in magic. Anytime there was a magic show, I wanted to see it. How many magic shows are there coming through well, the not, suburbs of Lexington, Kentucky? Yeah, there, there, there aren't there aren't many magic shows back then. You know, you you were lucky if you saw a magician on television once a year. That was a big deal to see a magic uh, performance on TV or live. You, that was the thing. But I was always searching to, to, to find uh, magic. And, and uh, eventually, I must have, I must have been really, uh, really into it because the next door neighbor, uh, the lady who lived next door to us, uh, her name was Jane, and she would babysit my sister and I sometimes. We called her Aunt Jane, and she noticed that I was really interested in magic. And one day she came over to the house, and she had in her hands a book. And the name of the book was Magic Made Easy. And the book had belonged to one of her kids who were now grown. But she must have noticed how interested I was with magic because she found this book at home. And she brought it over and gave it to me. And now... A whole new world opened up to me because up until that point I didn't know anything. How did you, how do you learn magic? But now I under I, I understood that there are things 
called magic books where you could you could you could learn how the tricks work and you could learn how to perform them and that started me off really on my education i would go to the library at school i would go to the public library and i would always search for magic books and that's that's how how you learn in the beginning and so when do you start practicing tricks how old are you oh right away i was, I was like five or six years old and what was the first trick you successfully performed that oh, tricked people? Oh boy, I don't, that's that's a good question. You know, when I was when I was like maybe seven or eight, I think I got a magic set for Christmas. One of these little, you know, they have them at the toy stores. It's like a whole box full of tricks with instructions. It was probably something out of the magic set. One of my kids, first thing that they mastered, they love magic. One of my sons does the trick where you have the blue mat and you have a quarter on each oh, uh, yeah. thing and you have a card and you keep going and by the end you have four quarters underneath. Under it. the one card? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing he really mastered. Yeah, great. The thing that I think my other kid mastered first was the one where you let the person predict what's a black card and what's a red card oh yeah out and of then, this world and then all the red cards are on yeah. one side and all the yeah. black cards on another the coin tricks called uh, matrix and the one with the cards with the different the colors black and red that's called out of this world that was the first trick that my uncle did for me who was the expert on houdini that just blew ah, me away and sid. when i saw my nine-year-old son doing i'm like oh my god i, I, I love sid your uncle was such a great guy he really was a wonderful man. Your uncle and I, you know, your uncle, when he when he auctioned off his Houdini collection, uh, your uncle and I did a live satellite interview on one of the morning shows. It was the Today Show or Good Morning America, one of those shows from New York. And we were here in Vegas. And so I sort of had to translate cause, for Sid because he was he was a little hard of hearing. And he was like point. 90. Yeah, he was. A, he hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. He was an, he was an elderly man, and, and we both had little IFBs, you know, in our ears. Yeah, these are the things in your ear where somebody talks to you from the producers, something of that nature. So, so the, uh, the, I think the lady interviewing us was Ann Curry. And so we couldn't see her, of course. We're just looking at a camera. They had a cameraman there in front of us. But she, she could see us. She was in New York. 
So she asked me a question and I answered it. And then, and then she asked Sid, Sid a question and, and Sid couldn't, couldn't hear it. Sid's going, what? And, and she repeats the question and then Sid looks at me. And, and so I had to, I had to relay the question to Sid. I think it was, you know, I think the question was, was, you know, why, why did you decide to sell your collection at this time? So she asked the question. I said, "Yes, she wants to know why you're selling the collection." <laughs> and he goes, "Oh yes, yes." And then he gave his answer. So it was it was just really it was just a really great moment with Sid and I because I was I felt very protective of him. I, your he, your uncle was such a sweet man. I appreciate it. My uncle always used to tell me these stories that you would believe were him. Just always fool me. There was a comedian named Kenny Rogerson, and he had this great routine where he'd say, I had a horrible day today. It's just, my girlfriend was killed. I go down the morgue to identify the body. They pull out the drawer. She pops up. Happy birthday, Kenny. (laughs) I just said to myself, I can't believe I fell for this again. (laughs) (laughs) And with Sid, he'd say these things and you'd be riveted. Like the last story he told me, he said, hey, Barry, let me tell you the story. I was just taking the bus. I was in uh, Las Vegas. I took the bus and I was sitting in the handicap seat and there's the bus is packed. And this gorgeous, gorgeous showgirl comes on the bus. She's in high heels. She's wearing this little tiny dress all the way up. So beautiful. And I felt so bad. I said, listen, if you want, you can sit on my lap. I'm only going two stops. I'm an old man. Just sit on my lap. It's okay. And so she sat on my lap. And then one stop later, I tapped her on the shoulder. I said, "Uh, miss, I'm sorry. You're going to have to get up. And she looked at me, she said, what are you talking about? You told me I could sit on your lap. You're only going a few stops. You're an old guy. And he looked at her and he said, yeah, I just realized I'm, I'm not as old as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm riveted thinking that. And then I realized, oh, he's just telling me a joke. He's telling me a joke. <laughs> Unbelievable. So now, now your uncle actually actually knew Houdini's brother. Hardeen. Hardeen. Yes. And, and was and was Hardeen he was Hardeen's protege? Yes. And I don't what I don't understand is that if you had a brother who was the most famous magician in the world. Oh yeah. And he dies and you have everything of his, the yeah. water torture case, yeah. handcuffs, locks. Why would you just give it to somebody even if he's a friend, why don't you just keep it or just hold it in a storage facility? He gave everything to my uncle. Yeah. That's cool. But he, but he, he, he but, 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 but was this near the end of Hardeen's life when he gave it to your uncle? Or? I think so, yeah. But still, it's crazy, you know, for the, my uncle all through my life, he owned the water torture case at the auction where I produced that show. I actually bought Houdini's will and testament. Oh, really? Nice. My uncle told me that the things that are really of value that the people at auctions don't think are valuable right. are letters and things. They're looking at the artwork or sure. the milk can or sure. the, the water torture case. They're not looking at a letter a will and so i remember i got that and i bid for it and got it and i got one of houdini's original handcuffs that he made for himself the silver ones there's only three of them i got one of those so i was really happy about that it was a great event so you know did you ever hear that did anybody tell you the story about hardeen's like uh, locks a friend of friend of mine who's passed on uh now jay marshall from chicago uh, knew Hardeen in New York when Jay lived in New York, and uh, he said that Hardeen, if when Hardeen uh, was hard up for money, 
he would go down to this uh, particular hardware store in New York, and he would just buy, you know, a bucket full of locks and keys and things. And then he would go out and sell it, telling people it was Houdini's. <laughs> so, so whenever, whenever people have, you know, have, have, have locks or keys or something and they say it was Houdini's, you're always a little suspect because it was apparently Hardeen. That's how he got, when he, when he was hard up for money, that's how he got extra money. He would buy this stuff, you know, like basically from the junk store and then tell people that it belonged to his brother. So you're doing these tricks as at five and six and seven. Sure. And then that's how you built up to getting where you were to do the shows when you were a teenager. Yeah. So then when I was like 10 or 12, it was actually Harry Collins, the first magician I ever saw. He, he took notice of my interest in magic because my mom would go to Harry at, at work at Free Delay and she said, Hey, my you know, my son Lance, he really loves this magic stuff and and uh, for his birthday, you know, he says he wants magic and I don't know what to get him. And Harry would say, Oh, don't worry, I'll show you. And he would find, you know, really great books on magic or uh, you know, steered steered my education in the right direction. And then Harry at Harry's suggestion, he said, you know, when I was about 10 or 12, he said, you, you should start performing at birthday parties. And I was like, really? Said, yeah, you could, you know, back then, you know, you could get 5 or $10 to do a show for a kid's birthday party. And, uh, you know, you could go out Saturday and, 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 and mow, you know, a kid uh, at that time, you know, your only job uh, opportunity was mowing, lo mowing lawns. You could go mow a lawn and take an hour. You might get paid, you know, two or three dollars or five dollars. So it was a lot more fun to go out and do a magic show at, at a children's birthday party. I mowed lawns. Yeah, you mowed. We all mowed lawns. You should have. You should have taken a magic. I know. I, I'd have a house like this. So skipping forward, we know you did the shows. I don't know why, but I just am fascinated by this. Getting the call for your first break for the Tonight Show. Oh yeah. Could you explain how they found you? Take us through the I'll process of preparing for it, and take us through the day of the rehearsal and right before the curtain opens when you're introduced, doing the show. And then Johnny goes, okay, and then walking out. Take me through that whole thing. That, that, so first of all, <clears throat> when I was back, so, so let's see how to, how to start this off. So there was a series of events that led me to the stage of The Tonight Show. So, so in 19, start, it start, and it started a year before. Uh, in 1980, the International Brotherhood of Magicians um, at their at their annual convention, they they instituted this uh, gold medal competition, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to put on a competition, magic competition, and they wanted to make it a, a, a prestigious event and and make it an international competition. So they created this award called the gold medal competition. It was actually a gold medal on a ribbon, like like you get at the Olympics, and. Um, and they had the they had the first competition in 1980, and I went and competed. I was 20 years old, and I won the gold medal. So, so they give so you know that was a big honor. And then, and how many magicians were there? Uh, there's probably over a thousand magicians at the convention, but competing, I'm not sure. Probably, maybe 
thirty or forty or they had several days of competition. So I don't I don't And when you went in though, did you go in saying I'm gonna win this competition? No, I just went in saying I'm gonna compete. So you had no idea how good you were. Well, but the but the thing I had on my side was Mac and I were working at Tombstone Junction. So we were doing two shows a day, seven days a week. So when I took off for a couple of days to go to this competition, the act was tight. You know, I'd been doing it twice a day. So anyway, I win the competition and and the next year they invite me back to the convention as a paid performer. And uh and they held the second gold medal competition. And they brought me on, I think, to open the, the thing or close the thing. I can't remember. But here was the guy that won the gold medal last year. And I did my act. Well, at that performance was a guy named Bill Larson. Bill and his brother Milt formed the Magic Castle out in Hollywood, California. And Bill saw me at that show and he contacted me a couple weeks later and, and, and hired me to come out to Los Angeles. Uh, Bill and Milt did these shows, and they still do. Milt, Bill passed on it several years ago. Milt is still doing these shows in L.A. It's called the It's Magic Show, and it became an, it's an annual event that's been going on for like 60 years now. And they bring magicians in from all over the world, some of the top acts from around the world, and they do this big show in a theater in L.A. So they hire me to come out to L.A. to do the It's Magic show. Well, each year they try to get one of the acts on The Tonight Show to help promote this, this uh, two-week run at the theater. So the star of the show in 1981 was a magician from Peru, named Ricciardi, terrific illusionist. And uh, by all rights, he should have been the guy that got on The Tonight Show. So they called up The Tonight Show, and they said, we want to get one of our acts, if we can, on the show so we can promote the It's Magic show. And the star this year is the great Peruvian illusionist Ricciardi. And The Tonight Show, the producer at The Tonight Show said, you know, we just had Doug Henning on last week doing illusions. What else do you have? And then uh, Milt says to them, well, we also have this kid from Kentucky who just won this gold medal, this international award, and he does a sleight of hand act with cards and birds and candles. And the, the producer at The Tonight Show says, okay, we'll take him. Was that Jim McCauley? It was Jim McCauley. Legendary producer of The Tonight Show. So, so Jim, uh, I get to L.A., and Jim comes to see the preview show. We were doing a, a couple of nights of previews before we opened. So we opened. The opening night of It's Magic was October 28th, which was the same day as, I, as my Tonight Show appearance. So Jim comes to see preview night, which was October 27th. And now I go out on stage. Now, no one in L.A. had seen me. None of the magicians had seen my act. Uh, so I went out on stage, and I did my act, and got a real good reaction because it was the first time the, the Los Angeles magicians, and there were quite a few there at the, at the preview night, had seen me, and I got a real good reaction. And then Jim McCauley came backstage after the show, and I met him. 
And, uh, and he says, how long is your act? And I said, 12 minutes. And he said, well, you can't do 12 minutes on The Tonight Show, but bring the whole act and do it in rehearsal, and then we'll figure out what you're going to do on the broadcast. And I said, yes, sir. So, so the next day, I, sh I go over to the, to the Tonight Show, and a friend of mine went with me, uh, uh, Don Keller, a magician uh, there in L.A. That I, that I had met. And he was, you know, went along just to like help me carry stuff in and 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 and, and, and be there. And then I had to I had to do this night show. And then I had to run down to the theater to do the opening night. So we get to the night show and we do the rehearsal. And um, and I'm and the, there's nobody there for the rehearsal. The band I was using recorded music because I didn't have charts. So the band was watching the rehearsal. So they were kind of applauding and reacting. So it was almost like doing a show. So I do the rehearsal, and then after the rehearsal is over, I'm standing there on stage. I'm talking to Kevin, the stage manager at The Tonight Show, and, and uh, out of the corner of my eye, I see a hand coming towards me. So I instinctively just reach out to shake the hand, and I, and I shake the hand, and I look up, and there's Johnny Carson on the end of the hand. <laughs> and Johnny was very nice and was very complimentary and and we spoke just for maybe 60 seconds and uh, he, then he left and uh, and uh, I was 21 years old but I did have the presence of mind to ask him if we could have a photograph made that day and he said yes that that we can we'll do that after the show and I went oh that'd be great so I did have the presence of mind to ask him about that and so then about five minutes later, Jim McCauley comes over and he says, Johnny was watching the rehearsal and Johnny loved the act. And he said, let the kid do the whole 12 minutes. So, uh, so that was it. Johnny personally intervened. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, then we had to do another rehearsal, I think, for cameras. And then we had, you know, and I had to reset each time the act, which was, very intensive and then it was like okay now I gotta get ready for the show now I'm desperately trying to get all my act put back together so I could do it for the broadcast and we did the broadcast and then right cool. after I got the photo made with Johnny and I had to pack everything up and get in the car and drive down to the theater and do opening night who was on your show who was oh yes so I go out I'm the first guest by the way how was that possible I don't know how do you put a 21 year old kid on as your first guest you were the lead guest i was the lead guest now the second guest is dick cavett wow now i don't do the panel i just do my act right the second guest is dick cavett now dick cavett is also a magician as well as johnny they both started out as kids doing magic and as teenagers so now the next segment after me dick cavett comes out and now they start talking about me and my act and about magic and about the, the two of them doing magic as kids. And at one point, Johnny looks into the camera going, you know, no one knows what we're talking about, but there's four guys at the Magic Castle going, <laughs> this is the greatest show ever. <laughs> so that was my that was the launching pad for my career. And it was and it was and it was Johnny Carson personally responsible and now i'll tell you the ending to the story now we fast forward 30 years later and i've done 
uh, and I'm here in Las Vegas, and I'm doing my show. And and earlier we talked about the sword fight. Well, when I when when I did my third tonight show or no fourth tonight show, I did the sword act, and and I have a sword, and I go over to Johnny's desk and I put the sword up to his chest and I grab him and I pull him on stage, right? And now I I have him pick a card and I have him shuffle it and I take the sword and I'm doing all these sword moves and Johnny's reacting and it's hilarious because it's Johnny Carson. Got the biggest laughs I ever got with that trick because it was I was doing it with Carson and it was just like great. So that was my fourth Tonight Show. Me, that was the only time I ever got to be on stage with Johnny and he was a master. He knew where the line was. He knew how much to do and not but not do too much, which a lot of people in his position wouldn't know. So it was a great spot. Now, we fast forward 30 years later. I come home from work one night, and I turn on the news, so it's like 1 in the morning, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm eating my supper, and I'm sitting in bed, and I'm looking at the TV, and the news comes over, Johnny Carson has died. And I've got it on CNN, and I'm watching Larry King. And Larry King is talking about Johnny Carson and what a legacy he left and how many people he launched in show business. And he's got Ed McMahon on the phone doing a call in and he's got other people calling in. He's got people. And now there's Larry King. And in the background, there's a screen in the background and they are playing a compilation of Johnny Carson's, you know, 30 years of The Tonight Show. And they've got the one with the axe. And, the, and there's Don Rickles jumping in the hot tub with Johnny, pulling him in. And I'm sitting in bed, and I'm eating, and I'm watching this, and I'm just sort of stunned at the news. And there on the screen, behind Larry King, is me and Johnny Carson with the sword doing that routine. And I just sort of stopped, and I just went numb. And I was just like... That was the most surreal moment in my entire life, sitting there, and I and I didn't, I couldn't say anything, I couldn't do anything, I just, and they had me on the loop. It was like a seven, eight minute loop of highlights of Johnny's show, and and I I couldn't comprehend how did I wind up on this loop on CNN behind Larry King with Johnny Carson, and then it hit me. There's no sound on the loop; it's all visuals, so they pulled things like the Ed Ames thing with the axe and Don Rickles going into the hot tub and me with the sword with Johnny. Visual things where you didn't have to hear the dialogue. And that's how I'm sure that's how I wound up on that, on that, that loop. But that was, that was a very, very surreal moment. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.